Welcome to the Bad Soccer Dad Podcast, where we're asking, why do our attempts to bring out the best in young athletes often bring out the worst in parents? And what would it take to flip the script? Join us each week as we seek to develop better parents, better athletes, and better conversations. Here's your host, Steve Norman. My conversation this week is with Cutter Calloway. He's a professor of theology and culture at Fuller Seminary, a husband, a father of daughters, and a Denver Broncos fan. Let's jump into the podcast. Um, Cutter, how many kids are in your house? Uh, there are, well, not including me. Uh, there, are, <laughs> there are three. There are three. And what are, what are their ages these days? They're all, and within a couple of weeks, you're going to turn nine, seven, and four. Okay. And has your family ventured into the, the craziness that is the youth sports world just yet? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, I would say yes, but probably not in... And with the way that at least I imagined it happening, I mean, I have all girls, um, so that's one thing. Um, and they, at least the older two, seem to be um, more interested in, like, performing arts. Um, yeah. The middle one is quite a little gymnast. Um, but because of their age and, and the sort of groups we've got them in, um, they haven't gone into, the like, the competitive gymnastics or anything yet. Um, so that's where it's... Sports is there and around, but um, I don't think I've quite entered the stage where, you know, I've, I'm tempted to scream at somebody on the sidelines or something like that. <laughs> uh, quite yet. Quite okay. yet. I will say. What was it like for you growing up? Did you play any sports as a kid? I did. I did. I was, I primarily played baseball. I played a little soccer um, when I was really young, but mostly baseball. Um, and then in high school, I also played uh, some football as well. So and then I, I always saw myself as, I always wanted to be six feet tall. I'm not. Um, and so I would list my, my height in different uh, sports as 5'11", knowing, <laughs> knowing full well that I was actually 5'10". Um, but and but then, nobody ever oh, pulled out a tape measure to challenge you? No, no. So, I, you know, I tried to impose my height, which was not very much. And then recently I got the worst medical news of my life uh, a few years ago. I started going consistently to the doctor and they measured me at 5'9 and 7 eighths. And I, I was like, you might as well have told me I had terminal cancer. But I say all that because I, I like playing basketball. I never played it, um, organized basketball, but, um, that was another one of the sports that I just, I've always enjoyed doing. Um, and then interestingly, something I'm really bad at, but like, which is not usual for me, uh, is golf. Most other things that I'm bad at, I eventually kind of stopped doing, but I've always enjoyed golf and I'm still not very good. So. So let me ask you this. What involvement, if any, did your parents have in your youth sports journey? Um, I'd say quite a lot. Well, um, they were, they were very, uh, involved, um, but not in any sort of like overbearing way. Um, yeah. my, my dad coached, uh, some of my little league baseball, but then by the time I got into middle school, high school, I was playing, you know, with like youth teams or, um, school teams. And so, Generally, he wasn't coaching then and then was coaching my younger siblings. <clears throat> I'm one of five. Um, so I, being the oldest brother, uh, tell my younger brothers that they owe all of their athletic prowess to me um, because I, you know, I really created an environment at the home where they were forced to develop their skills early. Um, I, didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have that, right? So that's, that, anyway, so because of that, they actually, my Parents, I would say, were just ended up devoting more time uh, to their athletic uh, pursuits. I mean, both my brothers played soccer. My one of them won a couple of national championships at the college level, 
Um, and so because of that, they just, there was, there was more time they had to dedicate. So pretty early on, it sort of shifted to, um, some of their stuff and they still came and supported everything that I did, but they weren't doing like the on the ground coaching and that sort of stuff. Gotcha. Cutter, were there any like pivotal, like life learning moments that you picked up along the way or any that you can recall in, in terms of my parents and sports or just sports in general, sports in general. Yeah. I mean, well, (laughs) A lot. I mean, what, what isn't a lesson about life, I guess, is one thing. Um, I think probably, well, there are a number of things. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was ever very good. Um, <laughs> and, and it's because I just am an overthinker. So, like, the reason I would never make a good professional athlete is because, I mean, again, I'm not good at golf. But you would think, if I'm standing over a putt where I might be threatening a legitimate birdie, you would think that I'm playing and no one's there. Like there could be nobody there except for me. And that one put all of a sudden my, like f- my physical body locks up as if I was playing putting for the PGA championship or something like that. It's, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> so, so part of what I, I think I learned, um, is really like how to lose, um, and, and how to respond when you aren't always excelling or you don't always come out on top. And um, if, you know, at the time, obviously that wasn't the, a pleasant <laughs> experience, kind of, but looking back, um, I really do think it sort of early on helped uh, sort of shape me into a person that, that saw defeat um, not as like the end of the road or something ultimate or total, but, but actually as a kind of stepping stone to, uh, or an opportunity really to, to respond. Um, and, and I think that was one of the kind of pervasive lessons I learned, even though there was a couple of times I, I won, I was on some teams that did do some winning, but, uh, by and large, I think that was my main, my main takeaway. That's great. Cutter, tell us like for the uninitiated, a little bit about the work that you do at Fuller. What, what exactly does somebody who sit in your seat do on a day-to-day basis? Well, um, I, my a formal title is I'm a, a professor of theology and culture. Um, and depending upon what you mean by culture, <laughs> you could, it could literally mean anything. Um, and so a lot of what I end up doing is uh, thinking about, talking about, analyzing, um, usually sort of entertainment media, um, yeah. film, television, music, that stuff. Um, but actually it, in part because of my own love of sports, I'm a, I'm a pretty big Denver Broncos fan. Um, and so, uh, because of my own interest in sports and because how televised it is, um, I actually, uh, some of my stuff intersects with what it, what this whole sort of culture of sports is and how it means, especially in uh, the U.S. context. Um, because, you know, even though I teach at a seminary and it's about theology, uh, sports in the U.S. and probably globally as well um, for different kinds of sports really do function in very religious-like ways. I mean, people are... And, you know, I often use the metaphor of, of, you know, Sundays at an NFL stadium or even Saturdays at a college football stadium. I mean, how, where else do you get tens of thousands of people all coming together to literally worship like their heroes? Um, and, you know, they sing songs together. They have chants together. They, they organize the rest of their lives around it. They, they live or die, it seems, with every play that goes on. And, in many ways, they, these sort of sporting events, um, especially the fandom around them really function in some significantly religious ways that I think are connected to, to who God sort of made us to be and, and how God has designed us. So that's some of the stuff that I do. 
Cutter, one of the books that you wrote was on watching TV religiously. Talk, talk to yeah. me a little bit about that. Well, uh, similar to kind of what I just said about, let's say, football, um, uh, one of the things that I do is, is say, well, if, if as a Christian, as a theologian, one of the things that we say is true is that God, God is ongoingly active in the world. Um, and that includes in spaces that aren't necessarily confined by the church or some religious Christian community. Um, but God's out in the world doing things, moving, acting, involved in people's lives. And um, if we look at something like television that is now more than ever, which is hard to say that it increased, um, pervasive, um, it is, it functions as the, the sort of portal to our, our ritual lives. It serves as a, a kind of, uh, a technology that mediates information to us, whether that's news or entertainment information. Um, it's also functions as the, the primary stories that, um, that really we share, we hold in common as a society. And if that's happening, then the question is, well, there are many questions that come from that, but one of them is, um, what might God be up to in that? And how might, uh, people of Christian faith, um, enter into, uh, this landscape, this televised landscape and point out the places where God might be actually moving and acting? Um, and those other places where a, a sort of Christian or theological vision might offer a critique of what we see, um, of what we're consuming or even how we're consuming it. Um, and so watching TV religiously really is that starting point of <laughs> whether we want to acknowledge it or not, people are consuming television in a religious like way. Um, and what is the sort of challenge and the opportunity that that presents, um, to people of faith? So are, do you have any recommendations for people like me who's, who's going to sit down to watch college and football games with my 10 year old son? How, how do you do that with a critical lens or maybe a broader yeah. view to be able to say, Hey, what does this teach us about who God is, who God says yeah. we are and the work that God is doing in the world? Well, you know, um, I, I could maybe speak directly to that. Um, I, I would hesitate to say more generally, like anybody doing this, because in part it has to do with, um, relationships and context, et cetera. So if you as a father thinking about your son and you watching, let's say together, you enjoy this sporting event. Um, part of it, I think has to do uh, in many ways with, um, the practice of TV watching even more than the, the content that's on there. Um, so, uh, you know, ensuring that when, when you, when you watch that, uh, piece of media, that, that football game, uh, in this case, um, doing what, like I do with my girls, and that is when we do watch TV, we do it in a common room. Um, so I'm not letting them go watch their programs, whether sporting events or otherwise, you know, into their room on their, you know, little iPad or tablet by themselves. Um, so making sure that the, the sort of critical edge is making sure we're consuming TV in community, um, which I take, especially live sporting events. That's one of the things they really offer an opportunity for is in, an, in a, uh, a landscape of, of TV media that really is uh, about sort of binge watching by yourself alone, you know, while eating buckets of ice cream or something. Um, right. <laughs> uh, that the, here's a, an opportunity for a live event to bring people together. Um, and if you can lean into that, make that sort of the centerpiece of it and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to use this as an actual time that is structured um, around us getting together as father and son to, to do something together. And that is watching this. And then from there, um, I do think, and this is actually just, this is sort of up to the minute thoughts by Cutter. Um, I, I am questioning my allegiance to the National Football League right now. Um, <laughs> and it's, 
man, it's hard to even say, um, but this would get to the broader sort of societal things that I think Christians need to be thinking about and engaging with, um, whether it comes to the, the politics of it, whether it comes to the um, economics of it. Um, I do wonder if the, the NFL as a business is structured in a way that actually um, has its players' interests at heart. Um, I would say there's, there's a question about that with the uh, uh, NCAA as well for their football. Um, you just have a, a small group of, of owners that are profiting in an immense number of ways off of people that are, it seems to be, we're increasingly seeing, um, really sacrificing their life and limb to, to do this. Um, and I, you know, again, I'm not at the point where I'm going to not watch it anymore, but I do think that would be a really interesting conversation to have with a son, with a, with a child, um, especially if they're interested in going into that sport, um, raising some of those critical questions about, well, what, what does Jesus call us to, um, if we are going to consume professional sports, if we're going to participate in them, if we're going to, uh, contribute to the, the sort of economic structure that sustains this whole endeavor. Um, and again, we know we can't answer that directly for everybody, but I do think those offer some really interesting opportunities to talk about how our Christian faith intersects with the broader life and the broader culture that we live in. Cutter, it seemed like there was an era not all that horribly long ago where a uh, business like the NFL was largely at, out, out of reach for critique that this generation of of Christ followers and sports aficionados are parsing things a little bit differently than they had maybe even 10 years ago. What yeah. changed? What, with the NFL specifically? Or or just American sports, professional sports in general? Um, you know, I, I, I that's a good question. I, I think maybe I'll just speak for me um, because I, I would say you, that's an accurate description of, of me. I... I I think probably, and this again gets to where, like in, in my book, Watch Your TV Religiously, um, one of the things I bring up is uh, Christians being uh, uh, critical viewers, right? We don't just celebrate everything. Um, and you, what the book really does is to say, we've long been concerned about the wrong kind of things, though, right? Like we, the, the, the problems or the critiques we've had of, of TV media, of entertainment, et cetera, um, were, are, are not really the things we should care about. One of the things we should care about are these kind of questions. And I think um, that's probably what shifted in my mind that I've, I've moved from my, my younger days where I was pretty willing and able and desiring really to say, I really want to affirm what God's up to out in the world. Um, and in that sort of youthful zeal, um, I probably downplayed some of the ill effects of what was going on. And I think that uh, especially is the case for me anyway, when it comes to, to sports, in part because just my own story is I'm a huge fan of the NFL. Like I just, I, I grew up on it. I was born in Texas. You can't not be a Cowboys fan if you're born in Texas uh, in the 70s. Sure. I mean, my goodness, there's just um, my, my <laughs> ultimate dream come true or the couple Super Bowls where the Cowboys and Broncos play each other. You know, I mean, this is just uh, a part of my, it's in my bones, right in my blood. Um, and so uh, some of that really has to do with, I think, I don't want to overstate it, but, uh, but sort of God revealing to me some of my own idolatries and, and, and the ways in which I allowed myself to be blinded to some of the repercussions of that fandom, um, that I'm, I'm now increasingly uncomfortable with. Again, it doesn't mean that like, if you're a true Christian, you, you shouldn't watch the NFL. I'm not saying that, but for me, 
Uh, the reason I've, I've sort of emerged into a somewhat more critical stance towards, um, let's say the NFL in particular, um, is simply because it's my own process of realizing I, I, I consumed it in ways that were probably unhealthy, not just for me, but then that blinded me to some of the ways that it might have had, um, ill effects on, on both the people in, involved in the sport and then the larger sort of, uh, fan culture as well. So, Cutter, from your perspective as a theologian and as a fan, what what role can prophetic uh, challenge or lament play on the sports stage? Now, that's a really good question. Um, or should it play? Well, you know, I, I guess you you could go a, a number of different ways because um, I guess it depends on what your role is in relationship to the sport. So, I'm trying to think. I'm thinking through, for example, um, uh, if you are an athlete. Um, what your role is there. So, um, you know, I, I personally think, and again, this is just me sharing. It's not, I don't speak for anyone else. Um, but, you know, uh, a Megan Rapinoe advocating for equality for the U.S. national women's soccer team. Um, yeah. that, that is, I think, a profoundly, uh, it, it's a, it's a, I don't think she, I don't know. I don't know her personally. So, I don't know if she's doing that out of any sort of Christian conviction, um, if she even calls herself a Christian or not. But that represents a, um, I think, a legitimate sort of Christian appeal to matters of justice and equality and, um, and could be something that a Christian, for example, whether they are the athlete or they are the fans or they're the people um, that have a platform to speak to that. Um, I definitely think that could be a, a, a moment where you go, you know, Based on my Christian conviction, I want to advocate for these women being paid um, at the same level as their male uh, counterparts are. I mean, I, I think that's le- a legitimate sort of prophetic critique of the injustice, the the um, gender-based injustice that goes on in certain professional sports. Um, and I know there's a lot of a number of different arguments about you know uh, profit margins, et cetera, et cetera. And but but at the core of it is this question of What's the role of the Christian in this sporting environment? Um, and I think that's valid. In terms of lament, um, also a really interesting question because I think what I love about sports um, is outside of uh, really churches, right? And, and it doesn't have to just be Christian churches, but any sort of religious community in the United States. There are very, very few public spaces anymore where most of society gathers around and, and celebrates something together. Um, and I would think of, you know, especially when it becomes like the Olympics or something where most, if we can say that about anything anymore, but most Americans kind of rally around our athletes um, and celebrate that. Um, and what's interesting to me right now is how divisive it is when those athletes start using their platform to, to lament. Um, some of them doing it out of what I know to be actual Christian convictions. And then how quickly the Christian community itself, because they are, they make up the same sort of partisan politics as everybody else, divide and start um, treating each other in ways that, that would suggest that we're enemies, right? Um, and so I think one of the things that, that would really be helpful for all of us is to think about how we really do lament and what that means as Christians. And and when someone does lament as an athlete or whatever in and around sports, um, how we might uh, think differently about our response to it 
um, our openness to it, um, and maybe even the way we treat, <laughs> forget about the rest of the world, but how we actually treat each other in those moments of lament. Um, because I think it's really an important uh, uh, part of, of sports in general. Cutter, it seems Cutter, like in some like ways... In some ways- Younger athletes are in, engaging social action and even um, kind of compassion-based initiatives. So like a yeah. few years ago, my daughter was maybe 9 or 10. She was playing for a club soccer team. And in October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, they were all they all kind of bought pink jerseys. Yeah, and yeah. local college teams are doing that as well. Uh, a, a local college does what they call Night of Nets, where they take all the proceeds yeah. from that game and they, they buy malaria netting for uh, yeah. friends and partners in Africa. Uh, is that a, is that a good thing? And how can how can teams, youth pastors, parents yeah. leverage kind of global concern for good yeah. without hi- hijacking um, yeah. <laughs> other components of the game? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, you know, back to my uh, what did I learn when I was growing up? Uh, that whole notion of like winning and losing and being able to struggle with loss um, had nothing to do with global concerns, right? I mean, I. There, there was no sense in which um, anyone was asking my youth sports team to do fundraising for malaria nets. And so the, the, the conversation has simply just changed. And I think, um, you know, as a parent, as other, I actually think that's good. I think, um, I would have benefited from, uh, having some sense in which, yeah, this, you are struggling right now with a game. Um, and you need to make those lessons, but you know what? You're playing a baseball game, um, in the middle, you know, of Colorado at the time. Um, and that's a, that's great. Let's celebrate that because that's a, that's a delight. That's a freedom. That's a liberty that, that most people in the world don't have because they're just trying not to get bit by mosquitoes, um, and die. And I think, right. you know, I think that's a good, that's another lesson that could be learned. I, I also agree with you though, that, that it, it probably can go too far, especially depending on the age of the athlete. Um, sure. because I also go, man, if you're nine, do we really need to be burdening our nine-year-olds with caring for global outbreaks of malaria? Um, so right. obviously it needs to be balanced. But yeah, I mean, whether you're a youth pastor, a, a leader of any sort of ministry, it does seem like, again, sports have this real, um, I mean, it taps into our, our communal sense of, of, um, of, of rallying around a common cause. Um, and when you have that sort of energy, um, to say, hey, let's deploy that energy. Let's steer that energy into something that um, does something more than merely get us a W or an L on some, uh, you know, piece of paper. Um, but we can actually generate some more interest. I, I, that to me just seems um, good. I mean, that's that's being a good global citizen, really, in, in that sense. Cutter, tell me a little bit more about your commitment to making TV watching, at least in your home, a communal exercise. What's what's the downside? What's some of the risk or the danger of a family of six like mine, everybody going to their respective oh. corners with, with their five-inch screens and kind of yeah. doing their own thing? You know, um, that, so that it doesn't mean if you do that, it doesn't mean that, you, you know, oh, everything's going to go terribly. Um, but it what I see as one of the downsides is a – um, a, a, just a sort of life practice and you could replace it with anything. Maybe it's not TV, maybe it's something else. TV right now, the way that it's distributed, um, seems to skew in that direction. Um, and so the, the main reason that I, I suggest and think about, can we work against that is I just don't want to be, uh, sort of passively accept that as the terms of engagement. Doesn't mean that you can't occasionally watch some stuff by yourself. I mean, again, I, my wife and I, we watch shows that we are not going to watch with our kids, right? I mean, <laughs> we do that by sure. ourselves. 
Um, but, but I do think, um, for any number of reasons, this is, this is maybe more a broader kind of parenting in the digital age thing. Um, I'd like to not, um, put my kids in a situation where they're being forced to make decisions that outstrip their wisdom or maturity. Um, and if I can help create an environment where, um, even when they do stumble or run into something that they're not quite ready to, to, uh, respond to. Because I can't, I, again, I can't prevent everything from coming uh, to them. Um, but I can try to create a space where they know that this happens in a shared environment. And whatever it is that I encounter, I've got my, this community here to help me process and walk through it. And then also a, you know, um, a sort of guard or check against, <laughs> you know, what, what any of us naturally do when left un- unaccounted for. And that is uh, sort of skewed to the to the worst interests of our heart. Um, I mean, I, my, my middle daughter, she was out here uh, watching on my old iPhone just yesterday during their TV time. Um, and she was on the couch out in public view. <laughs> my wife just walked right over her and you could see her like moving the screen away from my wife. And, and she's like, what are you watching? She's like, uh, nothing, nothing, you know, and she actually wasn't watching anything. We wouldn't have let her watch. Um, she just didn't clear it. I mean, she, she just thought we might not want her to. And so it was really interesting. Even in that environment, she's, for whatever reason, prone to want to make decisions that, um, she knowingly, she knows may not be healthy for her, may not be ideal. Um, and, and so I just, I don't want to set her up in that way. So that's, I think that's where I go. Um, but again, depending upon the age, maturity level, et cetera, of, of your kids and your family, it's obviously going to look different for everybody. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Cutter. One more question in that same kind of vein. T- t- what are your thoughts on gaming for boys that turn 13, yeah. 14, 15, 16, yeah. where sports gaming is a part of the equation? Yeah. And not only can they play it individually, they can play it communally in the same room oh, yeah. and they can play it communally virtually. Yeah. What are the what are the pluses and the potential risks of, of that phenomenon as well? Well, uh, first off, you could become a millionaire. Um, so that's the upside. Um, you know, uh, if, if, if you want at 16, you can win $3 million, uh, playing Fortnite. Um, I, I think w- this is a really interesting sort of leading edge of, of sort of digital, um, engagement and almost all, uh, one of the other areas of research that I do is in, in psychology and specifically sort of media psychology. And, um, all of the assumptions about what video gaming does to, young people or anybody. And, you know, the average age is actually older than we think and far more female than we think uh, in terms of the average gamer. Um, okay. But, but um, there are, there's virtually zero data that would suggest that um, there, that, that, you know, lots of video gaming is destroying uh, kids' lives or making them uh, antisocial or, or whatever. Um, but in fact, as you said, because gaming now is so driven by um, sort of m- massive online uh, communities that it actually is a far more communal experience than what they encounter in many other uh, domains of their life um, and actually develops a lot of their uh, abilities or sensibilities for um, uh, working together for uh, team uh, based type activities. Um, and you know, now there's a, a le- legitimate, uh, sporting culture that you can actually professionalize in it. Um, and all of that seems to be good. The, the, the downside, if you will, 
um, is the same downside that we have just broadly uh, with youth. And that is that we actually live in a time right now, at least in the U.S., that statistics would say we have lower teen pregnancy, uh, lower alcohol use, lower uh, just uh, sexual activity, lower STDs. All of that is at historic lows. At the same time, anxiety, depression, suicide, all of these things are increasingly high. So to to say yes to video gaming is not to say that it's unproblematic, um, but it's not it's not in an isolation. Um, there's a much broader sort of digitization of society that is doing something interesting with our youth. Interesting is not the right word. That's doing something to our youth. Um, and one of those things is creating environments where they may <laughs> be avoiding certain behaviors and practices that we would uh, advocate for. But at the same time, we need to be really cautious because we just don't have the the data yet. We don't know what it's like for a human to grow up, um, uh, you know, with smartphones for their whole life. We don't know what that does to the development of a child because we don't have that the the data. Um, right. And so on that on that side, um, again, I go back. I just put my parenting hat on and I go, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be cautious here. I'm gonna I'm gonna be balanced in my approach and um, think about this in terms of anything else. And that is, uh, you know moderation uh, is is sort of the key to any of these things. Cutter, what does a balanced approach look like as you help kids make their own media choices? Because I, I grew up in an environment that was highly restrictive. Like you yeah, didn't, you didn't yeah. watch, you weren't allowed to watch anything except for like maybe one parent approved sitcom. And that was yeah. with the whole family. And then sport, yeah. you know, you have to watch bears on Sunday afternoon and the bulls, yeah. if they were winning, oh, yeah. but other than that, like the TV was off. And yeah. so I see kind of two camps, like not the stereotype, but two camps emerge, which is like, I can't let my kid watch anything that I'm not in the room for. And then on the other extreme is, well, kids are be kids. They're going to find yeah. it anyway. A friend's going to show it to them on the bus. So why, why bother? Yeah. Where, what's the, What's the healthy middle ground in that between the lockdown and the just kind of throwing up your hands and surrendering? Well, point of view? I mean, <laughs> I think it's again, uh, I may change my tune in 10 years. Uh, so, so, you know, you know, the age of my children. So that's uh, my response is reflective of that. Um, but it does seem and I think this is the challenge. I, and I feel myself going there already. And that is to say, regardless of what your actual family rules end up being um, for and for whatever reasons. It's got to be something where you, you yourself as the parent are actively and ongoingly engaged in the conversation. Um, okay. If, okay. if there's, I've, I feel like those two camps you described, one is essentially to say, I don't want to have to do the work of parenting. So you're not allowed to do this at all. Um, okay. And the other side is, I don't want to do the work of parenting. And so I'm just going to let the technology dictate what you see. Um, both seem like, you know, uh, a little bit overboard. Um, and I, of course, think some things like with our children, I would say, no, you're absolutely not allowed to watch X, right? Don't No, That's just off limits. Not going to happen. Um, sure. but I also, like you said, I know they're going to run into things and, you know, we already have encountered this in many ways of whether it's conversations or stories or being shown stuff that are outside of our control. Um, and so it has to be both a, here's sort of our ground rules of engagement and why we do this as a family. This reflects our sort of core family values, um, whatever those may be. And then yep. to say, I also, and this gets back to the sort of like why we do this together as much as we can. I also want to, as much as I can be, be the person, um, and be the place where they come to with those. 
um, those questions, those challenges, those maybe shocking or disturbing things that they encounter. Um, that's the thing I want to avoid. I want to avoid um, creating an environment, let's say it's an absolute no to everything or an absolute yes, that uh, they either are just exposed to stuff that's going to be harmful and they don't know it, or they feel like when they are, they don't have a place that they can they can process it. Because most of the um, media research I've read, re- almost regardless of the kind of content that kids encounter, um, whether what we would call good and constructive or bad and destructive, um, the real uh, uh, sort of moderating factor in that is whether or not they have an adult to process it with. So even okay. if you set them in front of some really educational material, unless they have a, a human to walk through them with that, it actually doesn't do much for them. And the same goes for destructive stuff, that it, it sort of lands flat. But if you can use it as a, a springboard for conversation, you know, why did that character say that? Why was that person so mean? Why would they use that kind of language, that sort of stuff? Then you can turn almost anything within reason uh, into something that, that actually helps them learn and grow as opposed to just kind of a passive recipient of, of content. That's great. Cutter, where can people find uh, more of your the resources that you're creating if they want to do a, a deeper dive into some of these topics? Well, anybody can go to CutterCalloway.com, um, and they just need to know how my name's spelled. And Cutter's with a K, and Callaway is with a C and all A's like the golf clubs, to, to use a sports metaphor. Um, and uh, yeah, all my stuff's there, or I work at Fuller Seminary, so fuller.edu has all my uh, info as well whether it's books or podcasts. Um, though the Cutter Callaway podcast, since uh, you're a podcaster, if anybody wants to come, that's a, uh, on iTunes and SoundCloud. So um, just search Cutter Callaway uh, and all that stuff should come up. Cutter says that regardless of what our family rules end up being as regards to media, we as the parents need to be actively involved in the conversation. Sometimes I punt on my kids' media choices because I'm tired or intimidated. But helping our kids know what to watch, why to watch it, how to watch it with a critical eye is a gift to them. So what are your family guidelines for media these days? Are you watching things together and discussing them? Or is everyone retreating to their individual corners and consuming sports, shows, or social media alone? If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Bad Soccer Dad on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and leave us a review. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.